Welcome to The Bike Show here on Resonance FM. I'm Jack Thurston and this is a special edition of the show looking at Kraftwerk, the German pioneers of electronic music on the eve of the band's eight-night residency at the Turbine Halls at the Tate Modern where they'll be playing in sequence one album each night, the band's entire back catalogue. With me to talk about Kraftwerk is the music writer David Buckley, author of a terrific new biography which is out just a few months ago. One of the arguments that he makes in the book is that the sport of cycling actually led to the breakup of the band in the 1980s. Now David is down a Skype line from Munich in Germany. We'll come to the cycling stuff a bit later but first David welcome to the bike show. Thanks very much thanks for having me Jack. So what drew you to the task which is a notoriously difficult task because Kraftwerk are well known to be publicity shy of writing a biography um, of the band. Obviously, you're a music writer and a journalist and you've written other books about other artists. But is there a particular personal connection that you have with their music and and where did that come from? Yes, there is. Um, I wanted to write about electronic music and um, I picked Kraftwerk because First of all, although there had been um, previous biographies of the band, there hadn't been too many. And um, so, so th- there was a lot of material, I thought, out there that, that um, I could work on. And I've just been a fan of the band since I was, um, oh, but when I heard Autobahn in, in 1975 as a, as a child. It was the first time I'd heard German being uh, sung possibly even spoken and the sort of naivety and childlike melody of of the tune really hooked me and um when i was a teenager i became you know pretty much um you know a big Kraftwerk fan so you mentioned autobahn there which was really the breakthrough hit and and i think still recorded in your book as as the biggest selling record that they produced but it was the fifth album right it, well, it depends whether you whether you count this this uh, album called Organization, uh, but it was uh, it was released in 1974, and and even even then it wasn't completely electronic. It wasn't until we get to Radioactivity, uh, which was the album after Autobahn, that it's completely electronic. Yeah, yeah. But but, but started off as a kind of well, their early stuff. Um, Some people like it. I find it rather unlistenable. It's it's like a lot of um, what was called kraut rock at the time, sort of free-form, jazzy, acid-rocky. And um, it wasn't until 1974 that we got this stable lineup of Ralph Hutter, Florian Schneider, Karl Bartos and Wolfgang Fleur, which is the kind of iconic full piece. You know, that's the, that, that's the uh, John Paul, George and Ringo of Electronica. <laughs> well, let's start at the beginning by looking at the origins of the band and the musical ideas that came to define their work. So starting, I guess, in the late 60s, what's going on musically, both worldwide and in Germany itself. And I guess there was a tension between those two things that had a bearing on the musicians that separately were working that, that would go on to form the band that you just uh, gave the line up to. I think the thing was the fact that 
this fantastic sense of guilt and shame after the war. Just recently, since I wrote the book, I was talking to our neighbor, who's in her early 60s. And she said to me when she was, when she was a child, 40, 40, 50 years ago, um, when she went into, ho- into a sweet shop in Holland, when they heard her speak German, or obviously when they found out that she was German, they refused to sell her some sweets. So this, this gives an idea of what it was like to be German in the, growing up in the post-war period. And what Ralph Hutter and Florian Schneider and others, members of Cannes, obviously Noi, groups such like that, and what, what they did was to self-consciously try and reinvent what it was to be German musically. Because at that time, all you had was Schlager, which is, if you think of Eurovision Song Contest entries, that's basically it. Uh, most appalling kind of uh, boom, bang, bong, bing, bong, music hall meets beer hall music. Um, and, you, and you had um, cover versions, co- copyists, people who wanted to sound like The Who or The Beatles. But what you didn't have was anything distinctively modern, youthful, vibrant, and particularly related to what it was to grow up as a young person in Germany. And so Kraftwerk, where they're really, really different, is is that three of the classic lineup were classically um, educated in terms of instrumentation. Karl Bartos used to play in a in a uh, orchestra. And so they came to popular music with the sensibility of wanting to do something very classical with major chords rather than something that was blues-based or something that sounded American. And so that's when their really distinctive sonic identity was unleashed on the world which was something that which was which was very ordered very structured and very unlike you know um american blues or british punk you know completely different and that's what sounded so striking in the mid 70s It's quite hard in 2013 with everything that's in our ears and has been in our ears since, I guess, the early 80s to conceive of that kind of music arriving. Was it completely new or, or did, it, did it come in from other parts of music, sort of classical or avant-garde music? Yeah, I mean, it, I mean part of it came from people like Stockhausen who were working um, in the classical sphere. Philip Glass would be another, Steve Reich. Yes, it did come from that, but th- th- this was this was minority music. <laughs> um, Kraftwerk de- democratised it and made repetition sort of joyous and popular. And I, I've just uh, I've just been listening to uh, the new Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark album, which is coming out in April, and it's really good. But it's also, in a way, a kind of sonic tribute to Kraftwerk, the joy of repetition. And, of course, the joy of repetition is something that is, is by its very nature, very industrial as well. The music of the early Human League was very stark. And Ian Craig Marsh from the Human League said that 
it was the, it was the sound of the drop forges in the the local heavy industry in Sheffield that metronomic beat that they heard every night where as, as children going to bed and it was somehow became encoded in the music so i think craftwork is a kind of industrial folk music and it's linked with um, modernism it's linked with industry and in its own way which we'll come to later it's certainly um linked to travel and ultimately to cycling as well i mean cycling is is the perfect confluence of repetition and and human endeavor yeah. isn't it i mean it's it's got that the noise is 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 perfectly mimicked by Kraftwerk's music it's quite interesting that i think in a recent interview ralph Hutter said that he doesn't listen to music he just listens to the sounds out there in the world and that's much better for him than listening to music and that has a strong tradition in 20th century classical music but it's quite it's quite interesting isn't it because you know the first thing that you hear when you hear about a new band in pop music is oh they sound a bit like this or they sound a bit like that and if you look on bands I guess bands don't have MySpace pages anymore, but new bands, you know, they always cite their influences as the sort of first yeah. thing that they talk about. And and he's yeah. deliberately saying, well, no, actually, my influence is what I hear in the street. I don't know whether this is true or not, but in America, um, in in the early 90s, when Kraftwerk were on tour, he took a pair of scissors around with him. And, and when he... When he had Muzak in a in a hotel room, he, he tried to sort of you know snip the connection so that it would go off. We have to bear in mind that Ralph Hutter's is in his in his mid to late sixties now, so he's hardly likely to be interested in the in Mumford and Sons. Um, <laughs> but I think it's I think it is that tradition of single mindedness. And for example, when I'm when I'm writing a review for Mojo. It's so tempting to 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 describe what you're hearing by reference to something else. It's what Russell Mail from Spark said. I'm fed up of sounds like music. You know, this sounds like Daft Punk or this sounds like the Hollies or this sounds like Pink Floyd. Well, with Kraftwerk, they just sound like <laughs> you know they they didn't sound like anybody else. And so, in in a world where we've heard everything before. You have to remember that this was this was an era where we had never heard anything like this before, and it was incredibly exciting. In terms of what was going on politically at that time, it was a time of quite a lot of radicalism, um, the uprisings in 1968, a sort of dissatisfaction with the way things were politically, a kind of post-war consensus. Were Kraftwerk touched by that? Did they have any kind of ideology or any political message that they were trying to get across? Or were they part of that milieu of, of, of radicalism at that, at that time? That's a good question because it's not easy to answer in that later in the 1990s, Kraftwerk aligned themselves very squarely with the anti-nuclear movement and turned one of their songs, Radioactivity, which was a very ambiguous song, which which was sort of about radioactive substances, but it was also about the activity of the radio or songs on the radio. And they turned that right around to make, making it very, very pointedly an anti-nuclear power song. Now, 
in the 1960s and 70s, I'm not sure whether Ralph and Florian were actively political in the way that I know that a lot of young German people were. You have to bear in mind that both of them came from very well-off families, particularly Florian, whose father was a very rich and successful architect, a very famous one. And they sort of dabbled in in, in music. I, I get the impression that they didn't really have to work. <laughs> you know, they, they were moneyed. And so they they ultimately um, ran Kraftwerk very much like a business with Ralph and Florian as the CEOs and employing other people on a, on a kind of, um, as if Kraftwerk were the, was, was, a, was a very uh, tightly run um, small business. So I'm not sure whether they had that spirit of 68 really in their DNA, like, like other people. So let's talk about the evolution that you alluded to at the very beginning between autobahn and radioactivity, which I think is a kind of key moment, really, in, in my understanding of the, the, the history of the band's output. We look at autobahn and listen to it, and it's this quite warm, sort of heavy pounding. You could say it's a kind of noi-type beat. Um, there's that great Brian Eno quote, isn't there, about, um, about the three rhythms of the 1970s that James Brown funky drummer beat and the fella Kuti afro beat and the klaus dinger noi beat um not to mm-hmm. diminish autobahn as, as a great piece by uh, of work by craft work but it's not a thousand miles from other work by other german bands of the same era even though they were obviously also new and revolutionary at the time with radioactivity what i hear is this clean sound with a lot of space fully electronic as you said and and also you have these melodies that are superficially quite cheerful and simple and and childlike but they have also this darker colder kind of longing side to them what was going on there and how did they get to that point with that that album i mean do you share my my way of looking at it is probably more revolutionary than 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 you've just described. That's my own opinion. I take I take what you'd say about the the Neue Motorik beat, um, which was incredibly influential later, uh, particularly on with Bowie's stuff in the late seventies. And because Bowie did it, then everybody else did it um, or tried to. I think with radioactivity. I mean, Wolfgang Fleur, who, who worked on the album, he, he, he didn't like the album at all. He said it was cold. The percussive parts that he was asked to play, he thought were a bit boring. So he, I don't, he, he didn't get it, but a, a lot of other people did. Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, for example, Andy McCluskey, that album is, is the DNA of his, of, of his music. And I, I think you're right. It it, it is actually, I, I find, quite a creepy record. It's full of very sombre melodies and, and very, very strange um, manipulations of vocal technique. And 
it just never seems to get going. There's no power to the album at all. It's sort of, it's kind of lost. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting because it's the genesis, I would say, of what came later in a fuller realization in the in the next three albums, which are probably the you know the the trinity of of the output. But you can definitely detect the elements there that they haven't actually gelled together to full effect but you can you can detect those elements in there from yeah definitely from from man machine on what you've also got is carl bartos writing as well and he brings i, I wouldn't say a conventional melodicism because that's that that's not doing him favors but but he, he he came out with some great tunes and so and so you so basically what you've got you've got the kind of the rigor of Ralph and Florian and the discipline and the the conceptualizing, and then it becomes incredibly strong when you've also got fantastic tunes as well, and that's when I think it all clicks in. In these albums, you have this sort of childish delight with technology and quite a telling simplification of complex technologies into their essential functions. You know, and there's there's a line um, in the track "Antenna" on Radioactivity: "I am the transmitter, you are the antenna." You know, yeah. it's it's almost like out of a children's book. Yeah, and yeah. We, we talk about anthropomorphism giving human characteristics to animals but this is sort of giving human characteristics to machines and circuit boards yeah it's it's uh, um it, it's just weird isn't it um <laughs> i just I, I just find that album very it's it's definitely their most disturbing I think. <laughs> and, and so if, if, if we look at trans europe express um we see the delight in travel yeah. Um, train travel, kind of hypermobility, and a sort of celebration of that. But also, what I detect in that album is a commentary on European integration and, mm. and quite a harsh critique of the European Union as it is now that, that takes two lines really. One is the line about the lyric parks, palaces, and hotels, you know, the, the sort of relics of of the past that come to define what Europe is now and 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 this kind of privileged elite that's spinning around the continent by train making their business meetings and their their deals and their political machinations and and that's what Europe is and and it's not it's not a very wholesome picture of of a vibrant forward-looking continent is it do you know I just just I've just been thinking, and uh, I sat my history finals in 1986, and one of the the questions in the general paper was about the increasing integration in Europe and and of a single fiscal union. And I didn't know really how to answer it. I mean, it wasn't really a debate that was that happening in the mid 80s. And with so many things with Kraftwerk is that they seem to have this kind of weird divining rod that they pick up on 
ideas. I mean, com- computer world, which we'll come to later, uh, the man machine about you know, the cyborg. And yes, you're quite right. I mean, Europe Endless has this, in the one hand, this kind of wistful looking back to the, the Europe of, of, of um, I don't know, absolutism in the 18th century. You know, it's got that kind of Palace of Versailles feel about it. I mean, the, the Hall of Mirrors on that album is obviously a direct allusion to Versailles, as well as being a kind of um, critique of modern pop iconography. It's a kind of wistfulness about the past and a kind of forewarning of, of the future. And I think this is this is a very interesting thing about Kraftwerk, is that, that they're so obviously rooted in the classical tradition. I mean, on that album, you've got Franz Schubert, which is, to all intents and purposes, a piece of classical music. Uh, but you've also got this kind of celebration of modernism, of travel, which which people don't seem to people forget but in the 19, 1970s getting around was not that easy it's not like it was today i mean i remember as a little boy in 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 the, in the 60s traveling on a steam train from liverpool to to canterbury and it seemed to take two days i thought i was in delhi or something <laughs> it's interesting to remind ourselves that in the 1970s the debate about Europe in Britain was completely reverse of what it is these days. You had the right in politics in favour of Britain joining yeah. the common market and the left seeing the common market as a kind of conspiracy of, of business against yeah. working people. And and now it's the reverse where, you you know, the right <laughs> is, is a little bit as well, is divided, I suppose, into the... Into, the little Englander view of, um, you know, we'd be better off on our own. We don't want to be bossed around by the French and the Germans. And the left, which sort of is pro-European because of what it conceives to be the social advances that have been made by Europe in in the the years succeeding that. But in the 70s, Europe was often regarded as, yeah, as this sort of cosy elite conspiracy um, Mm. led by business and, and... a kind of corporatist view of, of politicians and businessmen just sorting things out for themselves. And yes. I think it's, I think there is, you could say that Trans-Europe Express is almost a celebration of that, but I, I think it, that is to, to read it completely wrongly and it actually it's a, it's a critique. Well, you're quite right. As far as, far as I remember, it was, wasn't Tony Benn and Enoch Powell, weren't they, didn't they, weren't they the major campaigners for the no votes, weren't they, in 75? I mean, I, I've, I've lived in Germany for 20 years and I love Britain. But all I would say is that in terms of its infrastructure, in terms of, of getting things done, things working, in terms of its green um, policies, Germany is 30 years ahead of the UK. So if by people wanting to debate and uh, and out of Europe in the next five years. I think they're doing it from a position of ignorance. I think in the 1970s, things were obviously rather different. But it's very, it's, it's very interesting that you, you, you mention this ambiguity, because, for example, Ralph, um, incredibly well-read person, can speak English, 
and French fluently. And also there's something about this situation, the positioning of Dusseldorf so close to the Dutch border that you could drive from Dusseldorf into Holland in 40 minutes. And Ralph Hutter said that he didn't particularly feel German because he was in, he was in the nub of you know you could get you could access different countries from Dusseldorf so quickly. Even though there's this Germanness about Kraftwerk, there's this kind of um, Europeanness as well, which is very progressive. And that's why that debate never happens in Germany about, you know, in or out of Europe, because it's an existential decision that Germany has made. I guess stemming from what you were talking about earlier with the, the post-war shame was, was to commit itself fully to being part of this new entity. And that's rather unkindly regarded in Britain and in some in Greece and Portugal as a kind of German takeover of, of Europe but actually it was something different in the German context it was Germany throwing itself into this new entity open-heartedly I think mm-hmm. true so let's get to Man Machine which it's quite interesting if the, if we can look at these Tate concerts that are coming up as a sort of barometer of of which um, albums are the most popular amongst or at least amongst Londoners who are who are going to go and see them we can look at the order in which uh, they sold out and and I was queuing up down at the Tate in the Turbine Hall to get my tickets and um, it was a very long queue actually I think I was longer queuing than the concert's actually going to be that I managed to get a ticket to but but um, the first to sell out was Man Machine and it's an album that contains within it I suppose the key to the future of the band um, not only some of their best songs, but the themes that would subsequently be be developed. And it's really the deliberate reincarnation of the band as as cyborgs, as, as, as you mentioned. Is this their manifesto? For a start, Carl and Wolfgang, this was nothing to do with them. This was Hutter and, and, and Schneider's sort of conceit. Secondly, I think it it arose quite naturally out of that sense of sophistication and style that they had because they didn't dress like rock stars. They looked like bank managers. They dressed very coolly. They looked very debonair and suave, but they did not look like rock stars. And so this sort of transformation into the cyborg territory was a kind of natural progression, I think, and also, I think Hutter and Schneider, again, they obviously had their their fingers on the pulse of popular culture. I mean, I mean, the origin of it was showroom dummies from the previous album, and that was written in response to a, a British critic journalist who said that who who was lampooning their their style on stage. Said they they, they, well, they just look like, like shop dummies because they just don't move. You have to bear in mind this was 1975. This was the era of um, 
extravagant cock rock, Led Zeppelin. Hey, hey, woman, know the way you move, going to make you sweat, going to make you groove. Kraftwerk didn't want to make you groove, didn't want to make you sweat. In fact, they didn't actually want you to move. Uh, they just stood bolt upright and for the, the entire length of, of, of the concert. So I think, I think it was partly a kind of self-mocking uh, strategy to, to say, we're going to take this to the logical conclusion and we're, we're basically turning into cyborgs, we're robots. It, it reminds me very much of the autons in Doctor Who. I remember in 1970 being terrified seeing these these plastic monsters smashing through uh, shop windows and, and walking, uh, um, sort of stalking people and shooting them and killing them. And there's something quite menacing, I think, about, about Kraftwerk in, the, in this period because, you know, when you take it to its logical conclusion, when Kraftwerk played some shows in London about five years ago and Ralph just sends his robot to be interviewed by Miranda Sawyer, um, it, it really, it really is sort of um, stretching the boundaries of what pop music can do. I think. It's an evolution of the earlier idea that you described very well in your book about they're not regarding themselves as artists but as music workers. Yeah, yeah, um, as as sort of like drones in a in a hive. This is interesting because at the beginning of our conversation, you said that they were running the band as a tightly run business. Um, with Ralph and Florian as CEOs and and not the traditional freewheeling kind of band type of approach, but their own self-identification as music workers, it has a kind of proletarian mm. sort of romanticism about it, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I, how much of it is just rhetoric and how much of it is... Right. You talk to the people like Wolfgang and, and Karl, they would certainly Wolfgang would would claim that this was just simply a, a conceit to to make them look uh, to to create the myth. There's so much of Kraftwerk which is sort of in that kind of mythic stage where you don't quite know whether it's true or not. And then sometimes I think to myself, well, I don't really want to know if it is true. I quite like the myth. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about who did what in the band, as far as that can be discerned. And was there a clear division of, of roles. Who, who was contributing what? Well, Ralph played ukulele. Uh, no, he didn't. Uh, um, they, uh, the, two drummers, basically. You had uh, Carl, and, Carl and Wolfgang would play uh, electronic um, drums, which looked um, as if they were being played with uh, very long knitting needles. Um, and then um, Ralph and Florian would play synths. Um, Ralph would sing, but then as Kraftwerk developed, um, we got to a stage where, although Wolfgang was mainly um, tasked with 
the the the, the drum patterns. You also had Wolfgang, who would also play synths as well. But the only the only singer was Ralph. So you had, um, as you said earlier, this kind of democracy on their iconic 1981 Computer World tour. You you see you see them um, on stage in a kind of V shape. And before that, of course, you had their 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 um, their Christian names in neon in front of them. And so, yes, it was it, it gave the impression of a democracy. However, Ralph and Florian owned Kraftwerk, basically. You know, they were the uh, Jagger and Richards of, of the electronica. From my understanding, what happened was that Florian became increasingly less interested in, in straight composition and much more interested in voice synthesis. And that Carl Bartos and Ralph were the two that wrote, you know, a majority of the music as the 80s went on. And so let's come on to the cycling. This is The Bike Show you're listening to on Resonance FM. And the bicycle race was the subject of, of the next uh, record after Computer World. And it was a single um, called Tour de France, released in 1983. Um, where did their interest in, in cycling come from? Well, the first point to make is that in Germany, a lot more people cycle. Because it's just it, it, it's 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 cyclist friendly here. There are cycle paths in in most of the of the major conurbations. It's just easier to to cycle, and there's this love of the outdoors, particularly in in, in southern Germany and uh, in mountainous regions. So lots of people, you know, on a Sunday, just get on their bikes and cycle to a beer garden and cycle back, and it's all great jolly great fun so it's it's in the dna of the country um when uh ralph and florian um met carl bartos and wolfgang fleur apparently they were more into golf <laughs> they, they, they had they had golf clubs and had you know sort of you know caps and plus fours and uh and saw themselves rather rather more as the kind of you know uh <laughs> That that golf was the, more the sport for the for the um, upper middle class gentry in in, in Germany. Um, can you imagine what we, the conversation we'd be having now if they, if they if they'd just stuck to golf? You know, they, they would have joined the the ranks of Alice Cooper and Iggy Pop as as rock star golfers. But um, I can't specifically date when they started cycling. But what 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 I can say is that by the time of 1981 and the Computer World tour. Computer World, incidentally, my favourite album. I think their, I, I think it's their masterpiece. I think it's, I think it's when the prediction, the predictions are so powerful, and the music is also at its most powerful. Uh, but on that tour, you know, the, the, there are there are stories of uh, the tour bus being stopped a hundred kilometres from the next venue, and Ralph cycling to the venue and everybody else continuing on the tour bus and initially it was ralph and florian who were cycling uh carl wasn't that into cycling he was into running uh, and wolfgang by his own admission was just lazy he didn't like doing any of it in fact he had to basically learn how to ride a bike for the video of tour de france 
And he said that he was so wobbly at certain stages that, you know, he really had to concentrate, that he wasn't going to look, you know, particularly uh, gauche. But it's also this, uh, in Germany in the 80s, it was this, you know, fitness was very, very, very big. It was it was big in magazines, big in the media. And and they, they were um, young younger uh, men who just wanted to stay fit. But the tipping point comes when the cycling becomes more important than the music. We can trace a sort of interest, a cultural interest in, in cycling back to the very early days of the bicycle. We look at the bicycle now as a kind of a mundane, everyday machine, um, but it wasn't always thus. Um, before cars came along, the bicycle was the fastest thing on the roads. It was the fastest thing that you could drive yourself. Obviously, trains on, on the railways were faster. And it really delighted the avant-garde, um, particularly the futurists in the 1920s who saw the rider on the bicycle as this superhuman. Um, they saw energy running through matter, a kind of symphony of the machine age and there are some great paintings um, about that and so they're tapping in I would say to an existing um, artistic fascination with with cycling and and the act of cycling but one that had really gone away for many years with car culture. Yeah yeah definitely Um, I know that uh, part of Kraftwerk's project was to um, revisit pre-Nazi German ideas of modernism and Bauhaus architecture, architecturally, etc. So that would certainly fit, definitely. And so they spend a lot of time on the bike because you know cycling is one of these sports that it does engage you. You know, you go for a run and it's maybe a, an hour run, and then, then you can come in and do a day at the studio but with the bicycle it's that that time is elongated because once you get really into sports cycling then it's a matter of going up into the mountains you know you could be on the road for five six seven eight hours um, and 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 that you know eats into the time that they were (laughs) that they had available to make music yeah it's it's incredible isn't it when you see other other rock bands you know killed off by um i don't know drug addiction or infidelities or, or bad management or all these kind of cliched tropes that are trotted out. And you get Kraftwerk, um, at least one of the band members said that uh, cycling killed the band off. But you're quite right. I mean, they took it very, very seriously. They, they did, well, Ralph and Florian, certainly, they did stages of the Tour de France. They, they, they did the actual stages and they did um, actual routes that were used in various uh, tours in, I think, Spain, Portugal, apart from uh, as well as Germany. They took it very, very seriously. And apparently, you know, they're always around the, uh, the bike shop, bike shops in Dusseldorf. If you wanted to see Kraftwerk, you wanted to see Ralph or Florian, you're much more likely to see them there because actually contacting them at their studio was nigh on impossible because they were so secretive. And it got to the point where Wolfgang told me that they would just be on their bikes for hours and hours and hours and come into the, to the studios about seven in the evening, covered in sweat. And he said he was just fed up of these 
piles of sweaty cycling gear in the corner of the studio. And then Carl's, Carl told me that um, if you've been on your bike for seven or eight hours and you have something to eat, your, 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 basic, your, metab- your metabolism is such as that you're very, very rested and, you're, and you're, your heartbeat is very, very low. And basically all you want to do is sort of, you know, have a chat, go to a restaurant, watch the television and go, back, go, go to bed. And this was the time when they were supposed to be creative and making music. And the the pace of production, once the cycling kicked in, fell away completely. And because the Tour de France single, what do you make of that as a as a single? It, it comes across in the book that you don't particularly like it, and and and, and it, given that it came off the back of Computer World, which is you just said is your 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 favourite album, it, it, did you regard it as a bit of a disappointment? No, no. I, I remember bought, I bought it uh, as when it came out as a single. Um, I do like it, uh, but it's based. Its melody uh, is based on a on a pre existing piece of of classical music, the name of which I cannot reveal in the book. So it's not the most um, it's not the most um, original of pieces, uh, but I do like it. Yeah, I, I just think that I, the thing I don't like about it is that kind of slap bass sound on the synthesizer it's almost as if it's the first uh, first time where i felt that Kraftwerk was sort of i'd lost a little bit of nerve and they wanted to make you know a synthesizer sound like a like an like a normal um instrument which is which is of course what they did what the americans did you know which is you know how, how can we get a synthesizer to sound like a horn you know, it was that kind of uh, that kind of idea to synthesizers. So, yeah, it's not one, it's not one of my favourite singles, but I, I don't hate it either. It came to prominence, I suppose, in the film. Is it Breakdance? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a great scene. I think that's probably the first time I heard it. You know, I'm, I'm, I was born in 1972, um, so you know, I was I was not there buying the um, the albums when they came out, but I did <laughs> I did go to see Breakdance when it came out, and I, re- I remember that. One thing that we must mention is another um, thing that that really took the wind out of Kraftwerk's sails was Ralph's very serious cycling accident, which occurred in the early 80s when he was out with his cycling friends who, who tended to be, you know, professional people, doctors and lawyers and things like that. And he was... He was um, basically, um, so, I, so I've been told, he was cycling too quickly, trying to get to the, to the front of the pack. I think there was a clash of wheels. He fell off, hit his head. Although he downplays this in interviews, my understanding of this is he was very, very seriously injured. And um, he fractured his skull. He wasn't wearing a helmet. And uh, at least for a couple of days, he was either in a coma or extremely, extremely unwell. I'm not sure whether people thought that it was a, a life-threatening situation, but it wasn't, it wasn't um, quite how Ralph would uh, depict it in interviews. He, it took him many, many months to get actually back, back working. And apparently the first thing he said when he came to was, is my bike okay? 
Well, yeah, that's a, that's I think a common uh, refrain from the um, the uh, the cyclist who's just come off thinking about the bike more than they think about themselves. The fascination with cycling, you, you say, well, it's just a thing about getting fit, but I think there's more to it than that, and, and I, I guess you would too, and it comes through a, a bit in the book, that the bicycle, much more than the person in the car, is, is the sort of realisation of a cyborg creation of the man-machine, because the bicycle is this curious vehicle where the, the passenger is also the engine, yeah, and that just seems to play right in to the kind of core ideas that Kraftwerk have been mining for, you know, for, for the previous 10 years. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you also must, we must also say that they were, they were huge automobile fans as well and bought expensive cars and et cetera, et cetera. But you're quite right. This, this, this symbiosis between the mechanical and the human is perfectly described in, um, in cycling and also you know, the, the 2003 album, Tour de France Soundtracks, which I like more than most people. I do think it is coherent. I, li- I like the way in which different aspects of cycling, just from the construction of the bike, titanium, and then the, and then the track electrocardiogram and aerodynamic. I, I, I think it's a um, pretty good um, exploration of... Um, of the interaction between humankind and the bike. I mean, there's another interesting aspect to it that I think would appeal to them is that the more you ride a bike, the better you become at it. Whereas with a car, you know, the more miles you've got on the car's engine, you know, the more problems you get. And so the bicycle is kind of like a a self-healing thing. It, it, It gets better the more it's used, which is unlike traditional machines and it's a kind of higher form of machine in that respect it's almost but like these self-healing materials that are at the forefront of material science these sort of machines that have got a a life of their own which takes us back to the robots yeah this idea of um, perfection and, and, and improvement would certainly fit in with their aesthetic i also like in the album um the fact that it's it, the first three or four tracks are stages, are called stages, as in the Tour de France. They're very ambient, and one can almost feel as if, like, it almost describes exactly what you're saying, this, this, this kind of perfectionism. The body and the machine is in perfect accord, and, and the music is very smooth, and it's almost as if, like, you know, one is, if not freewheeling, but one is, is is effortlessly in command of the machine, of the bike. There's no there's no jarring timbres there. It's very smooth, and I really like that. I, I sort of feel, I can always feel myself, you know, um, if I wasn't so old and unfit, you know, in, in, in the Tour de France, in the middle of the pack, um, being sort of it, it's that kind of um, rhizomatic feeling that you're that, that you're that you're an individual but you're part of a, of a greater unity
and that's what it looks like when you look at the yeah. big bicycle races on the on the television. You see the peloton snaking through the countryside, coming together, going apart. It looks like roosting birds in the sky or a shoal of fish. It's 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 composed of individuals, but it's it's one, and that I guess also links back to this idea of of the music worker being part of a sort of factory of music production rather than individual artisans. And, and that's a duality that exists in cycling where it's a team sport, but it's individuals that win races. Yeah, exactly. And also, also we mustn't forget to mention the way in which Kraftwerk and Ralph have sort of sent up this... Um, uh, you, some people could, you know, would call it a, a addiction. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure you were you were aware of the um, the concert at the Velodrome in Manchester a few years ago, and the moment when the the Olympic team comes on during Tour de France, and I wasn't there, but I know people who were, and they said it was just an absolutely incredible moment because it was one so unexpected, secondly so funny. You know, the, the, you know, to, to give a kind of literality to, to to the song in such a in such a kind of simplistic way. And apparently, uh, when uh, they finished the song, Ralph, before he was about to sing the model, he, he he turned to the audience and he said, "Next time we bring our bikes." <laughs> <laughs> Do you not think there's some humour as well in their cycling uh, fanaticism? I, yeah, I wonder. I mean, I think there's humour in everything that they do. And I think that's what makes it tolerable, in, in a sense. Because, you know, it could be very cold and it could be very hard. But there's a wryness to it. And I don't know whether it's something that Germans are able to do particularly well. Um, it, it's take this sort of stereotype of the, the, the cold machine-like person, but sort of send it up with a kind of campness. And before that, I mean... I'm just thinking of that songs about about biking. I mean, there's motorbiking by Chris Spedding, but the, the, the and obviously leader of the pack by the Shangri-Las and all that kind of thing. But it was very much very much to do with boy-girl relationships. You know, the the, the leather-clad, good-looking boy, you know, trying to pick up girls. And this is completely the opposite, isn't it? This is yes, it is very serious, but it's also kind of unwittingly tapping into that kind of male nerdiness <laughs> that's 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 that some people would 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 argue that cycling does have a little bit of that you know that kind of tight trousered um, um male bonding sort of aspect of it which was sent up you know by monty python you know bicycle repair man things like that i think you're right to stress the the um sort of aesthetic implications of it but to me with the cycling there's also as you say, some kind of self-deprecation in it as well. Did they really keep ahead of the game in terms of making music? Because they always had been so far ahead and so very influential on what would come later. But I get a sense that music moved on after, maybe even after Computer World, and, and they were stuck in their groove that, you know, they obviously did variations on, but that was the end of the development. Um. I think you're probably right. I think that's the, the, the critical consensus. I think that Computer World is such an abstracted record 
songs such as old you can't really call them songs tracks such as like numbers is sort of brutal and stripped down and minimal it's it's sort of collision of beats and ideas and numbers and what happened after that was with the electric cafe in in 86 is i mean i mean electric cafe is an incredibly abstracted record music non-stop is it's hardly there i i really like it when i was writing the book um that album is better than i i remember it being at the time i remember it being very much a very big disappointment basically what happened was that their musical project just became distilled 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 and abstracted abstracted and and fewer melodies fewer beats and it just sort of um it, it's a bit like it's a bit like when you when you when you're doing a painting sometimes sometimes it's finished and then the tendency is to just pick away at it and do do other little bits and take bits away and fiddle around with it. And I think that's what happened to them. Plus, they got older, you know, by then they were in their early 40s. They were rich. Uh, certainly Ralph and Florian were. And they were more interested in cycling around the countryside. There's one part of me that says fair dues. You know, they've done some amazing work. They've, as you said, made plenty of money. What's wrong with just doing something different for a while why do you have to keep going back to the studio and producing something new for us the, well, or, the, the exactly, audience to uh to, to to appreciate well that's exactly what david bowie's done i mean he took 10 years out most people thought he'd retired but he hadn't he just just didn't want to make music for a bit and i i kind of really respect that rather than forcing yourself to do endless tours and playing the same old stuff and and and, and writing music which your heart's not in I think it's. I think w- why not take a break? I think that's. A, I think that's what they did, and then they came back with this album, the mix, which was um, th- that killed off the band <laughs> more than cycling, possibly, in the sense that Carl Bartos became so infuriated and so demoralised when he wanted to be making new music and touring that they spent five years just twiddling around with the canon, and the album is perfectly okay. I, I, I you know. So it works great as a greatest hits, uh, but there wasn't then any new music until 2003. Although my intelligence, uh, <laughs> my intelligences uh, tell me that there was an album ready about 1996-97, and uh, it never came out for whatever reason. Because there are live tracks which Kraftwerk performed of songs which haven't been on albums. Uh, in the 90s. But, and basically what, what Kraftwerk then did was turn themselves into a kind of touring museum. Yeah. I mean, Kraftwerk concerts are fantastic events. Loud, incredibly loud. Uh, I remember seeing Kraftwerk about 10 years ago um, in, in Munich, and it was incredible. This kind of, the thud, this kind of somatic, you could feel it in your really in, inside your body. The beats were so powerful, and the acoustics were so perfect. And the stage presentation is is just. I, I I've seen the three D show in Munich a couple of years ago. It is incredible. You know, you 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 put your three D glasses on, and and 
one minute, you know, you've got a robot arm coming past you, your head. And the next minute, you've, the minute after that, you've got sort of numbers being being shot at you, which are flying over your left shoulder. It is a, it is amazing. But whether it's whether it's Kraftwerk with only one member of the original lineup in the band is another thing. I mean, it obviously it is Kraftwerk because two of the members have been in the band for over twenty years, but. That, you know, you, you could make an argument that when Carl Bartos plays live uh, with his new album this year and does The Model and does Computer Love, that it's potentially almost as valid as a Kraftwerk concert as, Kraft, as, as Kraftwerk are at the moment. It's just such a shame that Carl Bartos isn't in the band uh, because it would it, 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 the whole thing would be different. I don't think it would be so retroactive and whilst I really love the idea of them doing these eight shows and, and the music's fantastic and, and it's fantastic to see Ralph still doing it age 66 or whatever he is, I, you know, I really do admire him for that. And I love the fact that they're still around. But I just wish that it was more... I wish I'd seen the classic lineup. I didn't see them in 81 and I really regret that. Do you think there could ever be a reunion of the classic lineup? No. I don't think so. But, but, but you see, there are splits in bands that just never heal. For example, The Stranglers, Hugh Cornwell left the band in 1990. And promoters have, have offered the, the Stranglers big money to reform the original lineup. And the falling out was so big that they just there's no way that that could happen. Now, I don't think the falling out in Kraftwerk was ever on that scale. I mean, Wolfgang was asked back into the band in the in the 90s and he declined it. But with, with, with Carl, I think that he's doing his own shows, he's doing his own music. I think he quite likes it. He quite likes it like that. But I, 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 would, I would think that the chances of Ralph asking the, the classic four to, to, to perform again anyway are, are pretty remote. Because I think he, I think he regards Kraftwerk as his project. Because Kraftwerk is a project where, I mean, I, people made the point to me is that in a hundred years' time it could still be going with completely different people. You know, it's it, it's more of an idea, isn't it, than an actual. You know, it's not the Beatles. <laughs> so you didn't get interviews with Ralph and Florian. Um, if you could spend an afternoon with the pair of them, um, what would what would you what would you what would you like to do? Obviously, you'd go for a bike ride together. Um, you know, around Munich. What would you What would you talk about? What would you What would you like to know? What would you like to ask them? Well, I'd be trying to keep up with them, probably, and I'd, I'd probably be trying to steer the direction to a beer garden where they'd probably want to have, you know, cafe and kuchen or something. Um, so there'd be a dispute there. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I'd love. I'd love to. I'd love to. Uh, I've interviewed them. I mean, Florian apparently is is very very funny and dry, and he comes across like that as well in his interviews. He's, he's uh, and 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 Ralph, I think, is you know, genius. Really, I never got close to finding out a contact um, address for Florian. Um, I arrived at Kling Klang Studios with Wolfgang. Florian was there, and then when he saw me, he put, he, the shutters came down, <laughs> literally. So he obviously didn't want to see me. Um, and um, Ralph knew about the book and. Didn't, didn't take up the offer to be interviewed. Um, so if I was going to ask them anything, 
God, you really put me on the spot now. I think I'd ask them, why did they turn down so many potentially lucrative collaborations? Because they could have gone on tour with David Bowie. You know, the rumour is that Elton John wanted to work with them. Uh, Michael Jackson contacted their management around the time of, of Thriller. I think I would ask them that. And secondly, I'd probably ask him, uh, on behalf of you, what his, you know, what how quick he is in a time trial. I was in conversation with David Buckley, who is the author of Craftwork Publication, published by Omnibus Press, and it's a fine-looking book and an excellent read, highly recommended. You've been listening to a special extended edition of The Bike Show here on Resonance FM. My name's Jack Thurston, and I'll be back again when The Bike Show returns to the airwaves for the spring season. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.